Welcome to Virgin Territory, a podcast brought to you by SHIP. Each episode brings you new guests and new topics. We ask all the questions you are dying to know, from dating, sexual education and wellness, to kink, polyamory, and everything in between. Now please welcome your host, Vima Manfredo. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Virgin Territory. And holy crap, do we have an amazing uh, host, not host, guest, I'm the host. We have an amazing guest for you today, although they could be a host too. Um, Our next guest is a writer, activist, and all-around badass, and most recently the the founder and executive director of Educate Us, an organization spearheading the change to bring comprehensive sex education to schools across the United States through policy change and civil engagement. She's a popular speaker on campuses uh, and at conferences across the U.S. and beyond, and she's been a guest on the Today Show, Nightline, PBS NewsHour, Call Your Girlfriend, and numerous other audio and TV shows, and her commentary has appeared on outlets including the New York Times, VODS, Refinery29, 29, not 21, <laughs> um, The Washington Post, Glamour, and The Guardian. What am I, amazing resume. Um, so welcome everyone to Jacqueline Friedman. Welcome. Hey. Thank you so much. That was a lovely welcome. <laughs> well, you can thank Alicia. Um, she is the author of the welcome, but um, it's amazing. Like, that is quite a pedigree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 50 years old. I've had some time. <laughs> I didn't do it all at once. Also, if I'm being really honest, it makes me feel tired. I'm like, yeah, I did all of that. And now I want to nap. <laughs> right after after book number four um oh by the way she has written four books uh, after book number four i will be a little tired yeah yeah and now i want to know but instead i started an organization <laughs> yes <laughs> um like as you said it's called educate us and we are building a movement to change the way public school sex education goes in the united states um which is to say that we want it to be taught K through 12 universally around the country um, and not any abstinence propaganda or other BS that passes for sex education right now. Can I swear on your show? Oh, yes. We, oh, we swear on this show. Um, yeah, the, the current education, sex education in schools is hot garbage for it most is, places <laughs> it's hot garbage in most places and it's also become like even in places where it's halfway okay it's now like under attack by the extremist right um who doesn't want who thinks that like teaching what your genitals look like and what the names are for parts is like obscenity and pornography and and god forbid you should acknowledge that queer people or trans people exist um so uh it's um it's an interesting time to have started this organization for sure, but I've been thinking about doing this for a long, long time because I think it started in 2011, which seems like a hundred years ago, but it's only 11. Um, there was an article in the New York Times about sex education that profiled uh, the fantastic sex educator Alvar Naccio uh, and the great work he was doing in a private school in Pennsylvania. And in my circles, it went sort of the 2011 version of viral. Uh, people were sharing it around and people were all like, oh, it w- wouldn't it be amazing? This is what should be taught to everybody. Too bad that can't happen. 
And I was just like, I don't have a, this little oppositional streak. And I was like, can't it though? Like, don't tell me it can't happen. Like, I don't know the answer to how it can happen right now, but like, surely there is a way if we all worked hard enough and put enough resources into it to change the political landscape for sex education in this country. And so all these years later, that's what I'm setting out to do. Yeah, I mean, it change needs to start somewhere. And obviously, organizations like yours can can pave the way for what sex education should look like. And we have also great examples from across the pond of so many um, countries that are doing it right. And they're teaching about the mechanics of sets. They're teaching about body parts, but they're also allowing teenagers to understand their emotions, which is a big part of their sexual education and understanding how to manage those emotions and how to know the difference between being infatuated and actually being in love. A hundred percent. And even like just the basics of what's a healthy relationship and what are signs you're not in a healthy relationship. It's all, I mean, I think that in Europe it gets called sex and relationships education and well, I think that's sort of a snoozy name and I wish there was something jazzier. I really have been starting to say relationships and sexuality education more often myself because I think a lot of people, when you start talking about sex ed in the public schools, really think about, well, they they probably, statistically speaking, in this country got terrible sex ed if they got any sex ed at all in mm -hmm. school. And so they think sex ed is probably just like putting a condom on a banana or like how not to get a disease or get pregnant and um, which are, you know, things that you hopefully would learn, but a very small component of what actually a K through 12 relationships and sexuality education curriculum contains. But when you just say sex ed and you don't explain what you're talking about, uh, and especially when you're talking about teaching it at younger grades, people are like, oh, you want to teach blowjobs to kindergartners, which is obviously not the case. Um, and so I think we need a way to talk about it as something bigger than just about sex, like the literal act of sex, while not hiding the fact that that's part of it, because we don't want to add to stigma. Right. And, and you do bring a, a really good point of the difference between how we teach sex ed and relationship education to adults and to children and adolescents. So as you know, that's the work that the ship does, does to bring edu sex education and relationship education to adults. So how do you see um, how do you see the intersection between the education that the youth need to receive versus the education that we provide to adults? I mean, there's sort of two layers to it. One is if we can educate enough adults, then there won't be so much stigma about educating young people, right? I think that partly the role of adult sex education right now is to get parents to not freak out about the idea of sex education for their kids, right? Because they have misconceptions about what sex education is and they need sex education in order to feel like, oh, I do want my kids to know this stuff because they have ideas about what it is. But also there's stuff that you're not gonna teach to kids, right? Like, I think that there's lots of stuff that SHIP probably teaches that would not be in fact appropriate to teach in a public school, right? Like there's no reason in a public school to teach like, how to use sex toys or like how to get, you know, like th there's all kinds of, well, let's just say like PhD level classes <laughs> that you wouldn't teach undergraduates. 
Right. Um, and similarly, there's like lots of things that adults might want to learn more about that kids don't need to know in order to grow up having a healthy relationship with their bodies and with their sexualities and with other people. And that's what the focus of public school sex education is. It's not on all that sort of like, it's not, an, it's, there's no classes on ass play, right? Like, right. <laughs> so there's always going to be a role for adult sex education, but I think that there's such a hunger for like basic sex education in adults because so few of us got it when we should have. Yeah. And I mean, if I go back to the kind of sex education that I had back in Puerto Rico, it was a lot of, it wasn't just abstinence based, but it was definitely abstinence is the, the, the golden child, the, the holy grail of everything. But if you must be, and they actually alluded to this, if you must be a slut, please use a condom. But you're going to be marked as a slut. Did they say it that way? Um, they said it in the use pedal way. If you're going to let your pedals be used and um, and pass the, the flower around yeah. so you notice that you're like being used around. So that's that's the way that they definitely taught it. <laughs> so in in the field of school based sex education, there's a there's an informal term for that kind of education, which is disaster prevention sex education, right? So there's abstinence only, which would never teach how to use a condom under any circumstances. But then there's what what's formally called abstinence plus, but but we informally call it disaster prevention, which is like, you really shouldn't, but if you insist, please use a condom, right? Yeah. And, and you're giving such a good example of why that is also not effective and why it's in fact dangerous because even if it's conveying some basic safety information, it's also conveying so much stigma. Um, it's really still saying like, you should feel bad about yourself if you want to be sexual. And especially if you're a girl, I assume that they weren't slut shaming the boys. Oh, um, no. no, no, no. The boys, the boys were, um, what's that word? Um, viral, viral, uh, you had it right the first time. It's Viral. Viral. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's the problem when I'm dusting off memories from back at home. They come up in Spanish. And um, sure. Yeah, that, that's what happens. But yeah, they it, the boys learned about their virility and they learned about their machismo, chauvinism, um, and misogyny. And that was part of the teachings of like, yeah, you must get all the women you can. But hey, the women that you're getting are like the used women. And that's not the woman that you want. So not on a whore kind of thing. <laughs> but it also points to the power of real, shame-free, pleasure-centered, inclusive relationships and sexuality education, mm -hmm. uh, which is that they really do, really, this curriculum has, a, has the potential to shift our fundamental dynamics around gender and sexuality, right? That I always say, like, if you care about gender-based violence, you care about sex education. If you care about queer and trans liberation, you have to care about sex education. If you care about destabilizing white supremacy, you have to care about sex education because really good relations with sexuality education teaches we're all fundamentally equal, right? Like my body is mine and your body is yours and we respect each other's bodies. Difference is fine. Um, difference is interesting and and to be celebratory and not to be stigmatized um and as 
as basic as that sounds probably to a lot of people listening to that, this podcast, it's also feels very threatening to the people who are white male supremacists <laughs> um, who genuinely don't believe in that worldview. Right? Like, that worldview is destabilizing to their entire project and that's why they're fighting us so hard. Yeah, and that that brings me to my um, next line of thought and, and questions of how can we identify those barriers that prevents folks from seeing sex education as a political issue? And what are the things that we can point out for folks and say, these are interrelated and this is why? That's an awesome question. So there are a few barriers. I mean, there's probably a bunch, but the ones that we think about in particular are for parents, especially for parents of school age kids or kids that will soon become school age. There's a belief that their kid is not going to have sex while they're still in high school, and therefore they don't need to worry about any of this. And so it's like that sort of individualizing the problem. And then similarly, people who don't have kids think, well, this isn't, this isn't about me, right? Like, I don't have kids. Why should I worry about this issue? And, and the, the issue is that so often when, when advocates who have come before us have advocated for public school sex education, it's been conceding too much to right-wing terms, right? So the argument has, has been, oh, like, of course we don't want kids to have sex, but we just want to prevent HIV and like not let get any and prevent teen pregnancy, which like that argument in of itself stigmatizes HIV people with HIV and teens who get pregnant. Um, but also it's not very inspiring. Right? It doesn't make a big juicy case for why this is important. If you, th if you don't think that's going to impact your life, whether it, because you think your kid is not going to be one of those kids or because you don't have a kid, um, that's the age that you would care about. Whereas when we make the argument, which, which Educate Us makes and which I make, and which is that universal public school relationships and sexuality education could change this country for the better, right? Um, then it's everybody's problem. Then, then it's an issue that affects everybody. Like this, I don't have any kids. I've never had any kids. Um, I'm not doing this because I have kids. I'm doing this because I came up as an anti-sexual violence activist and it doesn't take that long when you start doing anti-sexual violence work to realize you kind of need to shift the whole way the whole sexual culture works in order to do something about sexual violence. Because all of the like ideas that undergird and encourage sexual violence are just embedded in the way that the culture, the dominant mainstream culture sort of approaches sex. Um, and when you start thinking about shifting sexual culture, you, you eventually get to sex ed. Right. Because I spent a long time doing intervention, right? Like going to colleges or writing op-eds in the Washington Post. You read my bio, right? Mm. And that's all interacting with people who needed this information sooner. You know, I would, I traveled, I've spoken at more colleges than I could even tell you at this point, um, given orientation talks and like so many talks about like how to have a healthy sexuality, about affirmative consent and how to be like a good sexual citizen while having a good time at the same time. Right. And I heard from so many students who would be like, this is amazing. I love what you're talking about. No one's ever explained it like this before. 
why didn't I know this six years ago? Why didn't I know this eight years ago? And even more than that, like I myself was sexually assaulted in college. And, and what I like to say, because it's true is yes, I deserved better sex ed than I had, but that wouldn't have kept me safe. What would have kept me safe is if the guy who hurt me had better sex ed, Mm -hmm. right? Not because he was confused about whether he had consent. He was not, but because he would have, he would have grown up in a culture where that kind of behavior was not tolerated, where there was a a community consensus about what was okay and what was it not. And that behavior was not okay. And, um, and so it's, it's an everyone project, right? It's not even enough just to get sex ed to quote unquote marginalized kids, however you want to define that. Everybody needs it. If we're really going to shift the sexual culture, do something about gender-based violence, do something about bullying and harassment of queer kids, right? Like if we're going to change the culture, um, everybody needs this education. So we have a shared set of values. It's about shifting the shared set of values. My, my, my most efficient elevator pitch for this is imagine a generation of boys who are raised knowing how to handle rejection. Just imagine the amount of things that would wow. change if that were true, right? And that's not yeah. the only thing that will change with good relationships and sexuality education. But that is a thing that would change. Like you said, it's about teaching young people to, how to handle their own emotions, right? And that's one of the things that's part of it. Like, mm-hmm. think about the Supreme Court being full of people who have had good sex education. Think about <laughs> our legislators, right? Like, having had good sex education and the different kinds of laws that would be ma- being made. Think about the people who make movies and tvs and books and all kinds of things and and how those would think would look different if everyone had good sex education like it would be genuinely transformative for the culture and that's something that everyone can and should get excited about yeah that that will be an amazing world where you can take no for an answer and people mostly women or femme presenting folks don't have to be fearful of saying no. Um, yeah. That, like, that would be amazing. You know, maybe your feelings are hurt. Maybe it doesn't go well and everybody feels icky about it, but nobody gets harmed, right? Like, right. right? <laughs> You're not going to get shot over it. Yeah. It doesn't go straight to, as, as the person getting rejected, it doesn't go straight to your ego. It just goes like, oh, well, that's disappointing, but thank you. Right, because your masculine identity isn't shaped around not getting rejected. Some of the work that you've done has been to popularize the phrase yes mean yes, as opposed to what used to be no means no, as the standard for consent. Can we go a little bit into that? Yeah, you know, when we first put out the call for submissions for yes means yes, which was an anthology, so like lots of people contributed to it. Um, It was at a time in anti-rape activism, which I came up in in the 90s, where there was this truism that got repeated all the time, which is rape has nothing to do with sex. And that is true in the specific sense that rape is not an act of sexual incontinence. Like it's not about somebody being so turned on they can't help themselves. But it had gotten so warped and so expanded that it was taboo at the time to think about talking about sexual pleasure and opposing sexual violence at this in the same sentence right like you couldn't talk about sex and rape in the same sentence especially if you're not differentiating between them without 
it being perceived as undermining the cause. And so when we put out the call for for submissions for yes means yes, we heard from anti-rape activists who said, we hate this. <laughs> We're going to have knives out for you when you publish it. But we never heard from them when the book came out, because once the book came out, like people understood what it's about, right? That no means no is not enough. No means no is important, but it's necessary, but not sufficient, right? So if someone says no, you have to stop. But when we leave it there, we leave the person saying no, who given the way that our sexual culture is currently structured is often a woman because we leave it to women to say no. Women are expected to be the gatekeepers of sex. Um, it leaves all that pressure on women. And also the question is like, well, did you say no? Did you say it loud enough? Did you say it clear enough? Um, as opposed to what did you do to make sure this person was into it? So it's about shifting the responsibility for making sure there's consent to both partners, right? right. It's not just like, you, there's no stop sign. I can go. It's like, you, you need to look for a sign that you can go. And only then is it actually consensual. And that's everybody's responsibility. And um, what that does is, A, it does shift responsibility. It takes a lot of the victim blaming away from the, vi the victims of sexual violence. But it also creates a permission structure for women who are often stigmatized, as we talked about, for having our own sexual desires to learn what we want to say yes to, right? Like I, I literally wrote my second book, What You Really, Really Want, because I toured around with Yes Means Yes. And I heard from so many women who said, I love this idea of yes means yes, but how do you know what you want to say yes or no to? Mm. Because we're so pressured as women to like not want, to be wanted, not the wanters, right? And right. so I heard from so many women who were like, I don't know what I want. How do I know what to say yes to? Um, and so when the beautiful thing that happens when you shift to an affirmative consent model, in addition to getting rid of all that victim blame and creating this shared responsibility for consent, it also is an invitation for folks who are not yet invited in to think about what do I want from sex? When what do I not, what do I not want? But also what do I want? And that's, it's so powerful. Yeah. And it leaves the door open for exploration if you don't know what you want, but you're in that space of opting in with your partner and you opt in to have an encounter and have an exploration and you have the means and the communication skills, both of you, to see what works in that moment. Yeah, I love and that. And people sometimes confuse affirmative consent with an expectation that like only like a peak sexual experience counts. But like, I, I always say like, you can affirmatively, you can enthusiastically consent to try something and find out if you like it, mm -hmm. right? You can yeah. get like really into, let's try this, but I might not like it. And that's, that's totally enthusiastic consent. So it really does create exactly right what you said, like this great permission to explore. Yeah, I, so I, I like using food as an example, uh, because it's something that everyone can understand. Um, so I went out with a friend and we went to get bubble tea. She's never had bubble tea before, but I'm a big fan. Um, and I told her, hey, I want to go get bubble tea. Do you want to go with me? She's like, oh, yes, I never tried it. I want to try it and see if I like it. There's that positive consent. So I got her a small bubble tea. I got myself the largest one because it's me. Um, and when she tried it, it was immediately no. Immediately, absolutely not. This is not for me. But she had that space with me of, 
you can just toss it or ask for another cup and get the liquid out. You don't have to eat the tapioca pearls. Um, and that's what she ended up doing because the tea was really good. The tapioca pearls were a no, no for her. But that's the kind of... I totally want her tapioca pearls, but... Um, I almost but, told them. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is exactly right. Like that she... And she didn't feel bad about trying something and then not liking it because she was free to decide that she wanted to try it. Exactly. So if you translate that to any sexual or intimate experience, that doesn't have to be um, sexual in the classical term. If you have that space to your yes can be removed at any time, but it's an opt-in for both, then we can go and have fun and explore and it doesn't have to be also very serious. So some, some of the things that I've talked to other folks about consent and the, the fear of this framework of only yes means yes, that it becomes very structured. I must get your permission to kiss you. Right, and it, this very legally, like, yeah, exactly. But yeah, and it's not like that. You can make obtaining consent a sexy thing if you're in an environment where you're learning from a new partner you can still make it with the space from for them to say no or for you to say no or to not say yes but make it in a way that is more fluid in how the scenario is playing out i always say just drop your voice an octave and make it dirty right like yep i really want to do something to you can i do that like just say it like literally that's what dirty talk, dirty talk is is actually a way of getting consent yep that's uh <laughs> that's usually <laughs> what i do <laughs> just, just make your voice low honey yep just just do that and less fun giggle because we as women and, and fan presenting folks we are kind of taught to brace our voice pitch and be giggly so if you'd like lower the voice remove 50 percent of the giggles and there you are <laughs> although i'm also pro giggles during sex I'm, oh, not, I, what we, yeah. <laughs> I think that also we like approach sex so seriously and that sometimes sex is very funny and deserves giggles but that's not what we were talking about no i i know but i i love that tangent because yes. i the the framework of having consent throughout the a sexual encounter or an intimate encounter makes it sound very serious, but giggles and bouts of laughter and bumping your head against someone's knee, all those things play as part of the enthusiastic consent. Yeah. And look, like if most people, if they're on, like if they, I hope, like, don't want to have sex with someone who's not into it right like they don't want to be doing sex stuff with someone who's not into what's happening and so if you are in agreement with that really basic statement then this is just a way of making sure you're getting what you want too everyone can relax because you know that everybody's into it yeah absolutely um so i'm gonna rewind this a little bit back to the schools um because one of the things that I wanted to ask you before we went on our wonderful tangent was uh, for those folks that are unfamiliar, how are the school school boards involved in providing or restriction sex education since we're talking about schools or where? School boards are making most of the decisions, honestly. 
Um, sex ed is really deregulated across the country. It's not regulated at the federal level at all. Um, there are sometimes under some administrations incentives, financial incentives to schools to teach a particular kind of thing under the rubric of sex ed. Um, sometimes it's abstinence propaganda that people are calling sex ed, but that's a lie. Uh, but there's no regulations on the federal level. And some states have like basic standards or frameworks, some don't, but most school boards have a lot of leeway around what's being taught in that school. Um, and they are right now under enormous pressure from right-wing extremists who are really well-funded and organized, even though they represent a small minority in most school districts, um, to restrict or drop altogether sex education to get books about sex out of the library, um, to change from opt out, which is the standard all over the country where any parent who doesn't want their kid to receive the sex ed curriculum can opt their kid out of it, to opt in where if you want your kid to get sex education, you have to affirmatively fill out some paperwork, which as you might imagine, makes it a lot harder to access because kids forget to bring the slip home or parents are working two jobs and busy or some of them have language barriers or you know there's all kinds of reasons other than i don't want my kid to have sex ed that that paperwork doesn't get filled out because life is life um so that that's a very pernicious shift right now to to try and make things opt in um so school boards have a lot of sway over what gets taught or what doesn't get taught as relationships and sexuality education and mostly we've been ignoring school boards. Um, I mean, I don't know when the last time is you went to a school board meeting. Oh. I I haven't been to one recently either, but I've been talking to a lot of people about school boards um, and getting active at school boards. And in fact, if you go to educateusaction.org and go to get involved, I think is the tab on the top. There's a little drop down that to a guide about speaking up for sex ed that will help you figure out how to show up to a school board meeting and what to say. Uh, with some messages that we've tested and can tell you are effective. Um, because the reality is we're the majority in this country. People who want quality relationships and sexuality education taught in the public schools are a huge majority in this country, always have been, continue to be true, not just in blue states. Um, and, uh, but we don't act like it. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't show up. And the other side is organized and funded and showing up. And so they look so much bigger than they are and they're freaking out a lot of school boards yeah so it is time to show up basically yeah, it's time to even just like find out what's going on at your school board mm -hmm. like there there should be on your town website a section for the school board and information about when their next meeting is possibly minutes or notes about the most recent meeting or if you if there's like a patch or other like local reporting website for your town or your area, you can go on there and see if there's reporting on recent school board meetings. At least find out what's going on at the school board and if sex education is being attacked at the school board level. Um, that's something that's important for all of us to pay attention to right now. Yeah, and for those that don't have children, um, it's a little bit difficult to make that jump from we need to help this country get better um, to go look at what the school boards are doing. So what would be the best messaging to tell them or tell us the childless folks um, 
this is still important for you. Yeah. If you look, if you would not like the Christian nationalists to take over this fucking country, you have to care about what's happening at the school board, right? Like the entire next generation of leaders of the people who are going to run your community when you're older, um, they're all getting raised right now. They're going to be your legislators. They're going to be your doctors. They're going to be lawyers and judges. They're going to be police. There's, you know, like they're going to be in control of a lot of stuff in the community and their beliefs about how sex and gender work are going to have a lot of influence over whether your community is a good or bad place to live and whether this country is a good or bad place to live um, and whether or not we have bodily autonomy and the freedoms we all deserve. So um, this is about what kind of community and what kind of country we want to create. And if you wish that our current leaders were better, you should get involved right now to make sure the future leaders are better. Yeah, absolutely. And if that's not enough motivation, also think even if you don't have kids, whatever city that you live in or town or county or whatever it is, your taxes are still going into that school district. Your property taxes are paying for that school district. So you have an actual voice, even if you don't have kids, to say what happens in that school district because that's part of your money that goes in there. Oh, 100%. And, and just in case you need a little extra permission, the opposition is shameless in showing up at school board meetings, even if they're homeschooling their kids, their kids go to private school, they don't live in the district. All the time they're showing up and taking up space and, and making themselves heard at these meetings. So like you absolutely have standing in your own community, whether or not you have a kid in those schools. And I rest assured that the opposition to sex ed is showing up many places where they have less standing than you do. That's another really good point. <laughs> They're shameless and we need to start bl blocking them out. The same way that you block out the, the Westboro from the, the, pride, the, the pride parades. Exactly. So we've been talking about school education in, in K-12. We talked about it a little bit about college education and also schoolship to um, education for adults. So why is the progress of sex education such a generational um, project? Why does it, why progress takes so long? Oh, uh, that's the big question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we just launched Educate Us in last fall and we are projecting this to be 20, 30 year project. That's probably maybe a little optimistic. I, I'm thinking about it in the way that marriage equality fight worked, you know, that basically marriage equality folks spent a bunch of the 90s like trying to make progress, not a lot of attention, more losses than wins, and then eventually you figure out what works and you start to rack up some wins and then it builds momentum, right? So I'm here in Massachusetts. We were the first state to legalize uh, same-sex marriage. And, uh, but like, it wasn't until the fifth or sixth or seventh state did that we start, then we saw a national case that went for the Supreme Court. We saw a Burgerfell. Um, and so I think that it's going to behave very similarly. We really have to convince people that this is an important progressive political issue first. Now, the right-wing extremists are doing a good job of that for us right now. When I started the organization, I thought we would have more convincing to do, but because uh, there are such direct attacks on sex ed right now, I think people are waking up to the fact that there's something important here. Um, but then we also have to figure out, like, 
So this is a little inside baseball. I don't know if this is boring for your podcast or not, but basically the the general left liberals and progressives haven't invested in it as a political issue. And so while CECAS, the organization that we work with, has this wonderful network of state and local partners around the country called SAPAC that are working to advance sex ed in their states, they are largely underfunded and also underinvested in in terms of learning the best practices of movement building. And so we have to build capacity inside the movement. We have to figure out what works, what really does change people's mind, what, what gets people off from, you know, because we already have strong majorities for sex ed, but those people aren't people who are going to take action for it, right? There are people who are going to tell a pollster, yeah, I support sex ed, but they don't do anything about it. They don't think it's important. And so the question is, how do we build a movement a big enough movement of people who think it's important enough to take time out of their busy and overwhelming lives to do something about it, to show up. Um, And it just takes time to figure that stuff out and to build the capacity around the country to do the things that it takes. So there's a great technique that we're hopefully launching a pilot project of this fall called deep canvassing, which was actually developed during the marriage equality fight, which Um, I don't know if you've ever gone door knocking or phone banking for a candidate, but traditional canvassing, which is what you call door knocking or phone banking, uh, is usually like a quick call or a door knock. Like, I'm here for this issue. Here's the information. Where are you on this issue? Can I persuade you? Yes, no. Let me leave something behind. It takes three minutes, most of these things. Um, Deep canvassing is a technique where instead of doing that typical thing, you actually, the person you've knocked on a door or called, you're trying to get them to tell you a story about why, how this issue affects their life. You're sort of trying to get them to self-persuade. And then once they do that, then you can sort of identify values in that story that you also identify with and you share vulnerably a story from your own life. And once you make that human connection, then you can do a little persuasion work with them on an issue and they're a lot more receptive to it. Um, and this has been shown on a one-to-one basis to be 108 times more, 102 times, way a lot of times, over 100 more times more effective <laughs> than traditional canvassing methods at persuading. And the impacts last nine months or more, which traditional door knocking and phone banking lasts a couple of weeks if it has an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an incredibly powerful process. And we're going to be figuring out this fall how like what is this what's the formula for sex ed in particular using this technique what's the script and but as you might imagine you need a lot more people you need a lot more resources to do deep canvassing at scale because it takes so much more time right right? so like a person who could make 20 calls in the same time it takes to do one deep canvassing call right like um and so it just it's going to take a lot of resources it's going to take a lot of like actual money you know, we're working on funders. Certainly, if anybody listening wants to donate, they can go to our website, educateusaction.org. But it's just also going to take a lot of time to really connect with people who haven't ever been asked to think about this issue in a new way and get them to think about it in a new way. And then to build momentum and build momentum. And that's just how social movements work. They work slow. You know, I had to come out of the de facto sound booth, so I apologize to all the listeners on the podcast because Jacqueline said a number of things throughout the episode that I wanted to kind of um, pull all together um, because they're in different spots. And I know the way I listen to podcasts, if you said something in minute five, at minute 60, I forgot it. 
Um, and especially if, when there's things that tie in all together. So you had talked uh, most recently about, you know, a, a long-term project and, and why progress takes a long time and, you know, successful progress, like a lot of things, um, they're incremental in nature. You can't just go for, you know, the, the big target and then call it a day. Um, and when you mentioned, you know, that, you know, right-wing extremists and other folks on the, on the right side of the aisle as well, they do, <laughs> I will give them credit at one thing. Um, and that is their ability to organize and stay on message. Uh, oh yeah, and there are they started organizing against abortion <clears throat> in the seventies, right? Like, yeah, this is this didn't happen overnight, right? And and one thing that we do poorly on the left side of things is you know, and, and you mentioned it but without mentioning it directly, and that is we are unable at times to tie in all of our interests into one single thing that a voter. Um, and there's a lot of people who are single action voters, unfortunately, um, that vote for a party because of one specific thing. We don't do that. Instead, you know, we have things like, you know, we want to have marriage equality, rightfully so. We want to have, you know, LGBT equality, rightfully so. We want to have positive, shame-free, science-based sexual education, rightfully so. So how do we tie all into that, to that one action voter instead of all arguing for the same piece of pie um because there's more pieces of pie, you know th there's more pie um just because we take it from one doesn't mean that there's not enough for the rest of us um and there's one thing that really stuck out to me that um i'll, I'll draw attention to especially for those that are thinking about vi visiting educate us they should um because there's a there's three pillars that you list that i think are a great way that people can use you know on their on their local end um the narrative shift so how do we move from talking about you know sex is bad or this is bad or that is bad um how do we shift that narrative to in a way that makes it i don't want to say palatable because it makes it sound like what we're doing is wrong um but accessible that, accessible um that inf information that people can digest easily and understand um organize you felt it was so important you wrote it three times um how do we organize in a unified manner um, to make sure that, you know, while we're promoting what we want, we're not disparaging others that are also in the same fight with us. Um, and then impact litigation. Yeah, I haven't talked about that one, have I? No, you haven't. And it's, <laughs> this is what I do in the background in these podcasts. I'm always looking at the, at the resources that our, that our guests have. Um, but that was just, just me jumping out of the sound booth, wanted to tie all that in together. And, and you can take that where you will at this point. Thank you. I, I will just say one quick thing about impact litigation, which is it's a fancy term for suing the pants off of people in a way that has a bigger impact than just the individual lawsuit. Um, and so it's about how do we bring, how do we use the legal system to our own ends, which is not just, again, about rulings that go in our favor, but also about getting the issue in the headlines about getting people to think about the issues differently and getting to make our arguments in public. We're not doing much with this yet because lawsuits are really expensive <laughs> and we are a brand new organization. So we're focusing on the, building up those first two pillars first while we figure out how to raise money for a, a legal arm. Um, but I ultimately would love to, I think we're gonna have to do this on a state by state basis because the Supreme Court is what it is until that changes. Um, I'd love to be arguing that kids have an, a, a right to not be harmed by the state forcing them to have abstinence education or learn shame around sex. Because I think that kids do have an, a, a right not to be harmed by the schools in that way. 
Um, and so, you know, ultimately it'd be wonderful to have a case that showed that like they have an affirmative right to receive comprehensive sex education. But before that, even if we could just get states to say, yeah, you can't teach this religious propaganda in a public school um, because of separation of church and state and also because it harms kids, um, that would be a huge win. And also there are, there are a number of states, not as many as we'd like, that have decent sex ed laws on the books, but they're not being implemented equally, right? So California, for example, has really, really solid sex ed laws on the books on a state level. But if you look district by district, some districts are just straight up ignoring them. And so we'd like to be bringing implementation lawsuits as well. Yeah, uh, the kids and the adults that they will become deserve better. Like their future selves deserve better. And you build those foundations as they're young. Exactly. Um, so I think unless we missed anything, uh, we have reached my favorite section of the podcast. Did we miss anything, Josh? All right, I'm getting a no from the sound booth. Um, so um, I didn't tell you about this at the beginning because honestly, I forgot that this is part of the podcast, but no one has to know about that. It's just our secret. <laughs> but my favorite part of the podcast is called the hot seat. I will ask you some innocuous, fun questions and you just have to answer them very quickly. And it's just for our listeners to get to know you a little better. Okay, let's do it. All right. So first question, uh, Pepsi or Coke? I don't like soda. No, I like the bubbles. <laughs> uh, favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, like anything with like the most chocolate, like chocolate fudge brownie with hot sauce on it. Oh, you're speaking my language. I need that today. <laughs> um, I know you have a DC comic character behind you, but this is not DC. Um, who is the best Marvel character? Oh, I'm pretty in love with Ms. Marvel right now, I will say. I, it's still my watch list. So I have to watch it. No spoilers yet. But I've read a couple of spoilers and it's pretty amazing so far. It's, it's pretty amazing. It really is. And I guess the bonus question that I already know the answer to, uh, who is the best DC character and why is it Wonder Woman? <laughs> it's obviously Wonder Woman. I have a Wonder Woman uh, piece on my art wall behind me and she's saying, uh, I, I've had enough of the horrors of man's world as of now I quit or something like that. Um, <laughs> Wonder Woman was my uh like my first feminist icon when i was a little girl i watched the original linda carter wonder woman tv series and i had wonder woman underoos which i don't know if you know what that is but it was basically like a little tank top and underpants like with the print of whatever superhero you got and i would like wear my underoos and i would spin around and around and like try to turn into wonder woman it never quite oh my worked. god i used but, to do that too i so, mean my first my yeah, my um, I, I was the same way. My I saw the show with Linda Carter dubbed, um, so it sounded kind of funny, uh, and I fell in love with her. And I used to spin around in my yes! living room, trying to convert into Wonder Woman. <laughs> Why didn't we? A, a great way to raise women who know that they don't actually need men. We might want men, but we don't need them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is 
Josh's favorite question coming up, uh, but I need the wrong answer only. Oh, okay. Why is there fuzz on a tennis ball? I'm so stoned. <laughs> I don't even know the right answer. I'm not good at being funny on the spot. Why is there fuzz on a tennis ball? Because uh, it's not fuzz. It's yellow mold. And they sit in those cans forever. I don't know. I'm... That's a unique one. I'll take that one. <laughs> <laughs> and last question. I won't be torturing you forever. Uh, what sound does a futz make? Oh. <laughs> I hope I got that in audio recording. <laughs> that was amazing. Well, those were all my hot seat questions. Thank you for sitting on the hot seat for a little bit. Are they um, the same questions for everyone or do you make up new ones each time? They're the same questions. I'm, now I have to go back and like hear what other people said. Yeah. Uh, we started this, I think, uh, halfway through season one. Um, and it's just a fun way, especially if it's an episode that is very heavy, it's a fun way to end it on a good note. Um, so before we officially wrap up, I just wanted to thank you again for coming and talking with us. This was wonderful and very informative. Um, and for all of our listeners, just remember to donate to Educate Us at educateusaction.org. Um, and you can also find Jacqueline at JacquelineFriedman.com um, for any additional information. And you can find her on all our social media. We will be tagging her on this episode so you don't have to stop the car to go write all this down. It will be written down for you. So thank you all for listening. Hey everyone, SHIP will never stop creating spaces that provide opportunities to engage in candid, shame-free conversations about sexuality, and we are committed to building a more sexually literate society so that more of these spaces can exist. In order to do that, we need your help. Consider joining the Sex Ed Squad by visiting weknowship.org. Our Sex Ed Squad members are the very foundation of our work, because changing our sex-negative culture requires a long-term strategy in your long-term investment. All gifts, no matter the size, have an impact. You've been listening to Virgin Territory, a podcast by SHIP, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing culturally inclusive, medically accurate, and pleasure-guided sexuality, education, therapy, and professional training to adults. You can visit us online at weknowship.org.